following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Please grab your Bible and open to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is what we'll be reading from this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. If you're not familiar with your Bible... You can find First Peter towards the back end of it. If you need to look up it in the table of contents, there's no shame in that. First Peter, chapter 2. 2 is the large number on the page. The smaller number of the verses. We're going to begin in verse 4 of chapter 2 in First Peter. That's my son crying because John's holding him and not my wife probably. That's good for him. He's fine. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. Let's read together. As you come to him, that's Christ, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, again, as we take our time now to study your word, quiet our hearts, allow our minds to be focused and attentive to your word, that our spirits would be ready to be led by your spirit in truth and in obedience to see where we must be met and challenged here by the truth of your word and how we can be empowered then to be faithful to it so that in our lives you may be glorified. We exalt Christ, the head of the church, our cornerstone, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Well, we've the last several weeks been looking at Peter's first letter to various churches there in Asia Minor. And this letter was meant to be circulated among them, and it's a letter of encouragement. There's a lot of pressure on the churches of his day to conform to the world and to return once again to their previous means of living. Because they became Christians and because they made certain commitments to follow Christ, 
to obey Jesus and his teachings, to gather together, to forsake sin, the world began to look on them with more and more disdain. Does that sound familiar to you at all today? That as you take steps closer to faithful obedience to God's word, you lose some friends, maybe lose the respect of some of your more worldly friends or relatives. Well, today, so 2,000 years ago, when Christians are making commitments to follow Christ, to be faithful to their calling, and the world despises them. In fact, this leads to the temptation to doubt, to look back to our past and desire what was once to us a comfortable sort of existence, free of worry, free of distraction. We didn't have to focus on obedience and do the hard things. We could literally do what we wanted, and we did. But God has called us to be holy as he is holy, Peter reminds us. And so he's writing the letter to these churches to encourage them because they are weary and exhausted and tempted to look back to their former ways and asking the question to themselves, is it not better just to go back? Is it not better just to turn away? The world wants us to go back. The world wants us to forsake Christ. And what we need as weary Christians, as exiles, pilgrims, tired from the journey, is to be reminded and exhorted, as Peter here is doing to his readers, to carry on, to stand firm, to remember their calling and their identity in Christ. So in the first part of the letter, what we have is chapter 1 and a little bit of first uh, part of chapter 2, is Peter's reminder that they have been called and they have waiting for them this glorious inheritance that is being kept for them on the last day. And that they should fix their hope and they should anchor their trust in God's promises that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. He calls them exiles. And says, as you journey and sojourn through the land that is not your home, trust that God will be faithful to you as he has always been and that you can have joy inexpressible and hope fixed on Jesus and that your faith would be found to result in praise and glory even though there's trials and disappointments in this life. As you're squeezed in by pressure, fix your hope on the glory that is to be revealed on the last day. Your inheritance awaits you. Onward, Christian soldier, as a hymn would put it. And so he reminds us of our salvation. He reminds us of the inheritance. He reminds us of the coming return of Jesus in which all things are restored and made new. 
where he judges the, the unrighteous and he vindicates the innocent. And therefore, we are to prepare ourselves and ready ourselves to be then faithful exiles, faithful pilgrims in this world by submitting ourselves during our time on earth to God's word and to God's ways. In verse 13 of chapter 1, be sober-minded, prepare yourself for actions and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you should be like obedient children to be holy as your father is holy, obeying his words and his ways because you've been purified by the blood of Jesus who redeemed you from sin and liberated you from the bonds of your master, the enemy, Satan. He's liberated you to walk as you've been created to walk in relationship with God. And so turn to one another, love one another, long for the word to be filled in the churches and in your life and your families as you long to be nourished by food. This is who we are as Christians. Elect exiles. We are obedient children. Today we see, as we journey through this life, we are to be stones and priests. That's what Peter's been doing and is doing to this letter, is giving us pictures of what it looks like to be a Christian in this world while we await Jesus' return. We are like exiles. We are like children. Here we are to be like stones and priests. That's the imagery he draws here. What he's getting at in our chapter here is an idea that is often elusive for us to, as Christians to really wrap our minds fully around. It's the idea of identity, who we are in Christ. There's lots of identifiers that we can claim. I'm an Oliveri. That's one way to identify me, a man, a Christian, a husband, a father, an American. There's lots of ways I can identify, but the most important identity I possess is one who belongs to Christ. Not because I've earned it, but by virtue of Christ's work and my faith granted to me as a gift from God unites me to him in a way that Paul describes as like marriage, when the two become one. So too are we united to Christ as one man, Christ as our head, we as one body. Therefore, our identity is rooted in Christ. So the way you think about all your other identities needs to be rooted in how you understand your relationship to Jesus. Jake, I don't know if this was your phrase or not, but we were having a discussion about identity at one point, and you used the phrase super identity as, this is a Jake word, by the way. If you didn't make it up, then I'd be surprised. But there's a super identity that governs all our other identities. Because I belong to Christ doesn't make me any less of an Oliveri, less of a man, less of a husband or a father. But all of those things find their true and deeper meaning in my relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? So because we're Christians, called to be holy in the world, 
We need to understand that our identity, first and foremost, at its most basic and fundamental level, is one who is united by faith to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Paul, sorry, Peter, is wanting to remind his readers that they have an identity which is to govern everything else they do. Whatever their trade is, whatever their, their family dynamic may be, who they are in Christ and who they are as a community of exiles needs to be understood as in Christ. And he uses some imagery that he borrows from the Old Testament. And in fact, what he does here is he looks into the Old Testament, these various types and images we see, like the temple or the priesthood, and he reinterprets them. He expands them. You may be familiar, if you read the Old Testament, that the temple was a prominent fixture in Israel's worship. That's where God came and dwelled among his people. That's where the glory of the Lord literally descended and filled the temple. You have the priesthood that's be staffed, as it were, by the tribe of Levi, this unique tribe that didn't have its inheritance in the land because they were to be stewards and priests, leaders of the temple, to help Israel, aid and guide Israel in its worship. They were the ones who received the offering and the sacrifices that the Israelites would bring and offer them on behalf of the people. There was a priesthood. And Israel was a unique and special nation among all the other nations that existed on the face of the planet, chosen by God. So Peter's reaching back into the Old Testament to the scriptures, as these brothers and sisters knew it, and, and saw that the church today was a greater fulfillment of these pictures of Israel, of the priesthood, even of the temple itself. And so he reinterprets it. He reimagines it in a symbolic, spiritual way. So we don't have a temple. We don't have an actual priesthood. And yet we see here, Peter describes the church as a nation like Israel, as a royal priesthood like the Levites, as a temple like Solomon's or the second that was built. In fact, consider just these two chapters, these passages in the Old Testament concerning Israel. You can write them down, but, but I'll read them aloud. Exodus 19.5 now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, the Lord says, and keep my covenant, you, Israel, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. This is Exodus 19, where he is about to descend and make this covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai. If you will obey my voice and keep my command, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses reminds, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. He's speaking there of ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, the tribe that has come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the twelve from Jacob, and those who would dwell 
in Egypt for 400 years and those who would be led out of Egypt by Moses and those who would make a covenant with God at Sinai and those who would go into the promised land. That people, that nation was chosen by God to be a people for his treasured possession. But a little later on in the Old Testament, God's promises continue to reveal the particular purposes and the plans that he has always had for his people. And so the prophet Jeremiah, for instance, just one of many, would come on the scene and he would make promises about a new covenant. Under the old covenant, Israel is the, God, is the chosen people of God, but there's a new covenant, a, a, a different and a better or a greater covenant that God will make with his people. And in this covenant, Jeremiah 24 verse 7 says, I will give them, that is those with whom he makes this new covenant, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. A little later on, Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer Shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the promise of the new covenant that Jesus himself fulfills. How does God forgive iniquity? How does God put away sin and therefore guilt and condemnation? The sacrifice of Christ. And as Jesus' blood is spilt, so is the new covenant inaugurated. This is when we take the Lord's Supper. We read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, as he quotes Jesus, this cup is the new covenant, what? In my blood. So the new covenant is established when Jesus' blood was spilled to forgive his people of their sins. So we see this shift happening over the course of really thousands of years. God chose the people, Israel, but has made promises and has enacted purposes. So that the promises given to Israel, many of the promises given to Israel, and the promises that are, are there for their inheritance, the joy and the beauty and the grace and the fellowship and the relationship with the Lord, all those promises are actually for the world. In fact, one of the very first promises of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, tells us that the world would receive the reconciling and redeeming power of God's promise. And even through Abraham, that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. So God's plan from the very beginning wasn't ever just one nation to be his chosen people, but people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to be gathered around in worship of him. The church then, brothers and sisters, you and I, and every church who clings to the name of Jesus as their savior around the world, it's fulfillment of those promises that God has made to his people, Israel. And so Paul will tell us, not all who of Israel, ethnic Israel, is of true Israel. Jesus alone did what Israel could not do. And when we look to Christ, believe, trust, and give ourselves to him, we are, as Paul would say, grafted into these promises and they're ours. 
All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. So this identity that Peter is laying out for the readers and for us is that God's promises have gone from generation to generation and now is fulfilled fulfilled in Christ, establishing a new and better covenant in which he brings to himself peoples from all nations to worship, whose sins are forgiven, and who can go into the world for the glory of God. And we become members of this new covenant, nation of priests. Notice, by our coming, we come to Christ. In verse 4, it says, As you come to him. That is him, verse 3, the Lord. In verse 3, he's squarely, clearly speaking of the Lord in the Old Covenant Yahweh sense. But he connects that very clearly in verse 4 to Jesus because the Father is God and the Son is God. The two are equal in essence. And so as the Father is, so is the Son. You've tasted that the Lord is good, and so you come to Him, says a living stone, so that you may be, verse 5, a, whole, a royal a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you and I become members of this new covenant community, this greater, truer Israel, this people of God with whom he has made this new and better covenant, we become members of that promise by coming to Jesus, the living stone, on whose blood better promises are enacted and the new covenant is forged. Notice when we come to Christ, three things happen. First, we are transformed. Christ is the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look in verse 5. As you come to him, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones then are being built up. So your contact with the living stone of Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church, enables you, dead in your trespasses and sins, cut off from the promises of God, to receive life. You are transformed from a dead rock to a living stone. You become like Jesus. Not in the ontological Son of God sense, but He grants to you life of which He is the source. The living stone transforms you into likewise living stones. When you come to Christ, you are given life. You give it now, and you will get it later. The promise is that you will be raised on the last day. That though our bodies may lay in the ground when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised. We will have new bodies, glorified in heaven with Christ. We will be transformed. When we come to Christ, secondly, notice that we are also built up. We become living stones in order that we may be fit for and made right in the material sense to be built up as a spiritual house. 
We are the right material necessary to form and build the house that God is intending to build. That is, this spiritual house. That's the allusion to the temple in the Old Testament, where God's presence and glory would dwell. So we know that as you're a Christian, you receive the Spirit. We read from Romans 5 this morning that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us, and therefore, we have a a dwelling place of the Lord in our very bodies. And each one of us as Christians then come together as a stone in a building, created and coming together as a spiritual house. That is the unity we possess as a church showcases the glory of God and the grace of the gospel. You're built up in spiritual unity. You're given the Holy Spirit, which dwells in you and is displaying the glory of God. Ephesians 3.10, the church exists so that the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed to the principalities, to the cosmic realm. That displaying happens when we are built up as living stones, as a spiritual house. Ephesians chapter 2, as earlier Paul will say, that we are being built into a temple for the Lord. We are stones. When we come to God, we're transformed from dead to living stones. We are built up, fit and made, proper and appropriate material to be members or stones in the spiritual house that God is building in his church. And we become employed. We are made to be, it says in verse 5, a holy priesthood. That is our, our vocation now, whatever it may be that we draw a paycheck from, truly and most fundamentally from an identity standpoint, is to be priests. Now, most people assume when we say priest, they think of what I do. The guy who gets up and talks in front of people. And even though in our tradition, what I do is not priestly work, and I hope that you don't think I'm a priest, but many people in many traditions understand that those who preach and those who lead the churches are priests, or they may call them fathers as their title may have. They wear the white collar. But in reality, the Bible teaches that every believer is a priest. In fact, the church is to be a holy priesthood. What does he say later on? A nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And so we become employed in the service of God as the priests were in the temple of God on the old covenant. Meaning, we are to do what? Offer spiritual sacrifices. This is the purpose by which we are given this identity as living stones when we come in contact with Jesus, the true living stone. As a spiritual house or temple unto the Lord, we're given the job of priest so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're transformed and built up and given a job when we come to Jesus. And friends, we must continually come to Christ day in and day out for these things to be transformed and be built and to receive our calling. If we 
hope truly, if we truly hope to be fully and faithfully living out the true purposes of our identity in Christ. We must come to Christ, not just once, but daily. Often, multiple times a day, you find yourself drawing near to Christ to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, to be built up in community as a spiritual house for the Lord, to be reminded and instructed in your calling as a royal priesthood in service and worship to Jesus in the world. Many of the problems that we face in our life when it comes to lackluster faith is because we have stopped coming to Jesus. Not stopped coming to church, but we've stopped coming to Jesus. We haven't stopped checking the box on our Bible reading plan, but we've stopped coming to Jesus. We haven't stopped having spiritual conversations with our friends who are also Christians, but we've stopped coming to Jesus. And this is, this is rampant throughout the church, where many of us, at times even myself, have found us talking the talk without walking the walk. But we must come to Jesus so that we continue to be transformed by His Spirit, built up in the body of Christ, and to receive instruction by His Word as priests in service and worship to God. If we're going to truly live out our purpose as Jesus' nation of priests, we must come to Him. And notice in this text that we see Christ Himself, who is the cornerstone, to be the ground of our identity. It's in him that we find our identity. He is literally the stone on which we stand. Not only would he be the ground, but he also will be the goal and the means of our identity as Christians. Notice firstly the ground of our identity. He, he is in the sight of God, choice and precious to him there in verse 4. He is the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. God looks on Jesus, his son, as the greatest good. In fact, he understands Jesus to be the very embodiment of who he is. What does Hebrews teach us? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. What does Colossians tell us? The fullness of deity dwelled in him. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, receives all of the perfect love and goodness of God because he is God in essence, equal with God in his being. Though distinct in his personhood, as we understand the doctrine of the Trinity to teach us from Scripture, he shares a union with God in his essence that cannot be separated. And so God, when he looks on Christ, perfect and righteous in all things, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Choice. And precious, 
God's greatest love will always be for that which is pure, good, righteous, and true. And so that's none of us. And only God meets that standard. And so when he looks on Christ, when the Father looks on Christ as choice and precious, it's because he's looking on himself in the flesh. Not only is he choice and precious to God, but he is this living stone laid by God, set down by God to be the cornerstone of the church. This idea of a cornerstone is when you would build a building in ancient times, and in many ways still now, we have to lay a sort of foundation. And in the old days, they didn't have concrete pouring machines, and so they got these large stones to build as the foundation. And not every stone could serve as a cornerstone or a foundation stone. They often dug up these large rocks to make sure that they would be stable and they wouldn't break as you built on them. And so they would pass over lots of them until they found ones that would work. But notice what he says here. In verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion... That's where God's people dwelled, or he, God dwelled in the midst of God's people. A stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But that stone was rejected by men. When men were looking for the stone to build their life on, and they picked up Christ, they threw it away, discarded, and rejected. No, but God chooses and sets Christ to be the cornerstone of his church. Now, God does not reject Jesus, but puts him forward to be for us this cornerstone on which we are to be built. In verse 7 and 8, he is rejected by men. He is a stumbling block and a stone of offense. To, to men who are hostile to God, Jesus is nothing more than a stump or a root or a rock sticking out of the ground that trips, trips them up on their way to whatever they'd like. But God had laid him in the ground in order that he would be the foundation of the church. And so to those who are being saved, Christ is not an offense or a stumbling block. He is our very foundation. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the ground of our identity as Christians is to be rooted in Christ as the foundation of our church. Not only this, but he is the means by which we receive our new identity. Our relationship with God as sons, as daughters, as heirs comes through Christ and we receive our work as stones and as priests because Jesus has called us to it. And Jesus' sacrifice renders then our spiritual sacrifices acceptable. This is what he says in verse 5, that we've been called living stones, and we've been built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood so that, or in order that, we would offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our job as priests is to offer acceptable sacrifices. Our sacrifices are acceptable because they are made right and righteous by Christ. 
His sacrifice renders our sacrifice acceptable to God. The implication being that our worship and our sacrifices at one point were unacceptable to God. It doesn't matter if you came to church. It doesn't matter what sort of religious language you baptized your words in. If you are not united to Christ by faith, all of your quote-unquote worship and your sacrifices were unacceptable because they were offered and sent. But Christ, who is our high priest, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, reminds us that he accepts our sacrifices by virtue of his own. He becomes both priest and the sacrifice. And we, following in his footsteps as a nation of royal priests, offer spiritual sacrifices that are made acceptable because Christ's own sacrifice. So this big idea of identity needs to be in the forefront of the pilgrims and the exiles in Peter's mind as they face trials and dangers and persecutions and pressures in this world. But he's also calling them to take up their responsibility as new covenant priests. Let me give you two parallel tasks of the new covenant priests I think we see here in the text one we've seen already in verse 5, is to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Now, what does that mean? Offering acceptable sacrifices or spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Well, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 in the first two verses. There's many instances in 1 Peter where Paul and Peter overlap as if they're learning from one another and borrowing from one another. Here I think Peter's thinking of Paul's teachings. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See the overlap? Do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in light of Romans 12... What is the spiritual worship of God's people? It is to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. Our bodies and our members submitted to the word for righteousness sake. Holy, he says, that you would be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God to do what is good, what is acceptable, or right and perfect. So Paul says that your life is to be an offering. Your spiritual sacrifice is one of offering your bodies on the altar to be used by God in all things. Now go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. There the writer says this, 
through Him, that is through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. What's that sound like? Worship. What does Romans chapter 12 tell us? Our offering of our bodies as a spiritual sacrifice, or as a sacrifice is our spiritual worship. It goes on, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, that is acceptable to God. So through Christ, we offer, continually offer up as priests a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name, worship and praise and honor that leads to a loving and a serving and a sharing and a sacrificing for our fellow brothers and sisters in order that we would please God. One commentator puts it this way, that Peter's sacrifices, we go back to 1 Peter, Peter's sacrifices here, this spiritual sacrifice he's referring to, are the daily devotion of obedience and praise to God, as well as the practical ministry to the needs of men. That's what he says. That the spiritual sacrifices that we have here in mind is the daily devotion of obedience and praise to God, as well as a practical ministry to the needs of men. In other words, all of our life, is to be offered as an act of worship and service to God as we do all things for His glory. Whether you eat or drink, do all things for the glory of God. So what does it mean to offer our lives up as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, our members, our bodies, for righteousness' sake? To offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, to do good to one another? It means that in all things... We seek to live for the glory of God in Christ. All of life becomes this act of worship in which we submit ourselves in service to God for his glory. So that's the first responsibility of a priest in the New Covenant, which is all members of the New Covenant, Christians. Second responsibility is this in verse 9, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of the merciful Christ. He goes on to continue to say that you are a chosen race, in verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Because you are God's people, because you have received mercy, which at one time you were not and did not, you now have been called to be a people so that, or in order that, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So one responsibility of New Covenant priesthood is to offer sacrifices, that is to give ourselves the glory of God in all things. Second responsibility then is to proclaim the excellencies of God's mercy in Christ because we've received it and therefore we proclaim it to ourselves, to one another, and to the world. We are, as priests, to proclaim the excellencies of our merciful Savior. That is, we have experienced unimaginable love and mercy in the gospel. That God would put forth his own son, righteous, perfect, innocent, like a spotless lamb, to be a sacrifice, or in Paul's words, a propitiation, 
a satisfaction of God's wrath against unrighteousness and sin that we deserved, that we would become righteous? We experience that in the gospel? And we sit on our hands and we say nothing and do nothing? is foreign to the work of the Christian life. So our own experiences of, of the mercies of Jesus and the excellencies of Jesus powerfully then, powerfully equips us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. If we've received mercy, we proclaim mercy. If we've been given grace, we give grace. If we've experienced patience, we become patient. If we've been dealt kindly with, verse 3, we are then kind to others. So we can't help then, as God's chosen people who have experienced God's mercy and goodness, who have been now called to be precious and choice, just like Christ had been, brought in and grafted into all these promises, we've now been powerfully equipped by that same gospel to proclaim the mercies of Jesus to the world. And so we must plead, and I mean that almost literally, plead with others to recognize and to receive Christ, not to reject him. Why is Peter talking about those who rejected the cornerstone? Why is he talking about those who stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do? Because he wants us as a royal priest to take the responsibility to preach the gospel seriously, to plead with men on their way to hell that they would recognize Jesus and not trip over him as a stumbling block, but that they would stand on him as his only firm foundation. We want them to recognize and receive Christ, not reject him. God has opened our eyes to see Jesus as a firm foundation on which we stand, the rock on which we shall always be firm. But others, you may know them well, don't see him with eyes of faith, but with eyes of scorn. We must pray for brothers and sisters to open their eyes to the value and the beauty of Jesus, to recognize and to receive him as their cornerstone, not as a rock or stone of offense. So our responsibilities as the new covenant priests are to offer ourselves and all things as living sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus, but also to proclaim the excellencies of the mercies of Jesus to the world. Let me end with just a couple final exhortations to you. First, Friends, consider the preciousness of the blessing of being God's people. Consider the preciousness of the blessing of being God's people. Look in verse 7. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, they have rejected the cornerstone. They have stumbled over him and they are destined for destruction. There is a preciousness to being a member of God's holy people. There is a blessedness in being counted among God's elect in Christ. We must spend more time considering 
what it means to have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. We must dwell on it, celebrate it, recognize it. We must look often to our past and be grateful for what the Lord has brought us out from, that he has delivered us from the hands of our enemy. He has brought us into the very household of God. Consider the preciousness of the blessing of being God's people. Secondly, I want to exhort you to remember the mercy you received. As we consider the the, the blessedness of being counted among God's people, we must continue then to remind ourselves that we are numbered among God's people because we have been given mercy. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. It's all grace. And we must remind ourselves that it is on God's mercy and kindness that we have been saved. Not on our works, not on our own merits, not riding on our parents' coattails, but only by the merits of Jesus and the kindness of God who put him forth as a sacrifice for our sin. Consider the preciousness of being numbered among God's people and remember the mercy received. There was a moment when we were not God's people. There was a moment in which we did not receive the mercy. And if we had died in that moment, all the wrath of God against sin would have been poured out on us forever and ever. But God shows his mercy to sinners by sending Jesus to die so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Brothers, sisters, remember the mercy you've received and let it lift your countenance. Let it fill you with joy. Let it lead you to show mercy to others. Lastly, Christians, draw near to Christ. Come to the living stone. Draw near to Jesus. Draw near to him for three things. Draw near to Christ for your acceptance. He, it says in verse 6, he who believes on him will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. You will not be left out. In fact, you will be honored, it says in verse 7. You are accepted by God because you have come to Christ. Or put it another way, you have been accepted by God because you have come to God by way of Christ. Come, draw near to Christ for acceptance. Jesus says, all that the Father draws to me, he will bring. For acceptance. Draw near to Christ, secondly, for mercy and for grace when needed. Again, in Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence, same word, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You must draw near to Christ for grace and mercy. Grace to love your spouse well. Mercy 
when you've sinned against your neighbor. Help when you're weary from the world's devices. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. This means pray. This means gather with God's people. This means get into the presence of God in worship so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're struggling, draw near to Christ for help, for grace, for mercy. Lastly, friends, draw near to Christ for rest. Draw near to Christ for rest. You know the passage, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you come to Jesus, the burden is lifted, and you receive rest. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's because he carries it for you. Come to Jesus for rest. Pilgrim, come to Jesus for rest. Exile, come to Jesus for rest. Christian, come to Jesus for rest. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you could come to Jesus for rest. Rest from your works. Rest from your anxiety. Rest from your desire to be accepted by people because you can be accepted by God. A little early for you. He's taking the coming part literally, I think. I want to exhort you to come and draw near to Jesus. And you'll have an opportunity now to do that as we take the Lord's Supper together in just a few moments. It's a time for Christians to spiritually draw near in prayer and in celebration for what Jesus has done for us. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together that recognizes that for Jesus, he wasn't a stumbling block for us, but he is our foundation. And so we come to him for rest, and in him we find mercy and grace and are accepted by the Father, and we stand firmly on him as living stones in the house of the Lord, as priests in service to God. Let us remember to draw near to Christ as our foundation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for Christ. We ask, God, that you would plant our feet firmly on the rock that is Christ so that we will not stumble to and fro, we will not wander off the path, but our feet are firmly planted on the foundation who is Christ the cornerstone laid for us that we would become living stones being built as a temple, a dwelling place for God to glorify himself among the nations. And all the promises that we read in the scriptures are ours in Christ, that we may know you and be known by you, that you have been chosen and are precious in your sight because Jesus, your son, made us acceptable, cleansed us of our sins, has given us his own righteousness, and has called us to be a holy nation of priests for your glory. Lord, help us to walk faithfully in light of these things. Again, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace and peace.